Right, hello everyone. Uh, welcome to the London School of Economics, and even more importantly, the Middle East Centre. Um, it's with uh, great uh, pleasure that we welcome Professor Madawi al-Rashid, who has been a visiting professor at the uh, Middle East Centre for quite a while, so we can take uh, some, uh, some of the reflected glory for the book that she's launching tonight, Muted Modernists, The Struggle Over Divine Politics in Saudi Arabia. Uh, Madawi is a visiting professor at the Middle East Centre and a research fellow at the Open Society Foundation. When I first knew her, she was a professor of anthropology of religion at King's between 1994 and 2013, and previously the prize research fellow at Nuffield College, Oxford. This is uh, one in a long line of superb books, and I must say that after she finishes talking, if she's impressed you, which I'm sure she will, you can go outside and buy a copy of the book which you'll sign. It would all it would usually be £35 on Amazon or in bookshops, but uh, because we love you so much and Hearst is such a, a good publisher, we will give it to you at the knockdown price of £20. So uh, buy it here or pay much more money afterwards. So Madawi will speak... Oh, I'm uh, Toby Dodge. I'm the director of the Middle East Centre. I forgot. I'll be told off for not saying that. Madawi will speak for about 45 minutes. It says here, I don't know quite what it is, but whatever tweeting is, you're welcome to do it at the hashtag LSE Rashid. Madawi will speak for about 45 minutes and then we'll have questions. So please join me in welcoming Madawi Al Rashid. Thank you, Toby, for uh, your warm uh, welcome. Uh, before I start, I would just like to also reiterate uh, how grateful I had been for the Middle East Center, who uh, uh, they hosted me after I migrated from uh, King's College and provided me uh, not only with an academic environment to conduct this research, but also for uh, very profound friendships um, and support. Uh, thank you very much, and please join me to uh, welcoming and applauding uh, the great work that the Middle East Center at LSC has done for all the research community that is associated with the Middle East and also for the wider uh, publics in London. Thank you, Gregory. Uh, um, yes, um, uh, for every book that I have written and other academics and uh, writers, there is a story. Um, the story of this book started um, uh, early, much earlier uh, when I finished one of my previous books that was called Contesting the Saudi State. In that previous publication in 2007, I concentrated on uh, a violent uh, jihadi trend that sprung out of the Wahhabi tradition in Saudi Arabia. And I looked at how the Wahhabi tradition itself had given rise to multiple Islamist movements. Some of them were peaceful, others were extremely violent. And that research was extremely important at the moment uh, when Saudi Arabia itself was uh, going through its worst terrorism crisis between 2003 and 2008. Um, but after that, when I was finishing that book, I was beginning to see the development of a new Islamist trend. Um, and this Islamist trend wasn't fully uh, developed at the time, so I kept my interest in it on the side and finished uh, the book contesting the Saudi state. But I was busy with other things, and then I returned to this uh, new trend of Islamism um, after the Arab uprising, because uh, I wanted to look at uh, how the Islamist field uh, has 
been changing, mutating under the Islam, uh, under the Arab uh, uprising, and the challenges that Arab societies face, uh, with specific reference to Saudi Arabia. So, Muted Modernist is uh, it's a book about the struggle over divine politics, as the title says. Um, as you can see, uh, there is a cover on this, uh, an image of many people on this book. And uh, I must say, from the very beginning, I am very, very sad that almost all of them are in prison in Saudi Arabia. Uh, not that they are violent. They're not violent uh, people. They haven't uh, called for uh, killing anybody, but simply because they have uh, uh, imagined a new political system. Uh, they have uh, developed ways of looking at uh, Islam and how Islam can become a blueprint for political reform. And this was their crime. So most of those people are now in prison serving uh, between 15, 10 and 15 years uh, of uh, prison, and I will come to them again. Let me start with the Arab uprising. What happened in Saudi Arabia, and this is one of the focus of, of, of this book, is to look at uh, the protest. We all know that almost every single Arab country experienced some kind of protest, from the street to writing to social media. All these public spheres have uh, been invigorated by the Arab uprising at that critical moment of 2011. And Saudi Arabia, uh, like other countries, witnessed some kind of upheaval. Um, there are two different types of upheaval. I hate to use the word Sunni and Shia, uh, but Unfortunately, in the Saudi context, there was a severe protest in the eastern province among the Shia community. And this has been discussed uh, by colleague uh, Toby Mattison. You could refer to his book. So in this particular book, I focus primarily on what was going on in the heartland of Arabia, in the Qasim region, which is uh, known uh, or has the reputation as one of those uh, most conservative areas, the Wahhabi stronghold. But Saudi Arabia is changing, and uh, uh, things have been moving faster than uh, most people would like to acknowledge. So in 2011, Saudi Arabia, in this particular region, did witness some kind of protest. The first photo, um, and I thought here I will look at these images that I was following at the time, rather than read you a text from the book which would bore you, and of course you could buy, buy the text uh, afterwards. But uh, uh, the first photo uh, is symbolic of uh, the protest that was going on among people who you wouldn't normally associate with civil disobedience, peaceful protest, marches in the street by women who were the relatives of political prisoners who had been held in Saudi prison for at least 10 years without um, uh, 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 trials on tr charges of terrorism, as the government tells us. So they are uh, um, protesting in Bureida, in the Qasim region in Central uh, Arabia, uh, with the photo of uh, the Minister of Interior at the time, Mohammed um, um, bin Nayef, who is now the Crown Prince. And uh, obviously, uh, you could see what they are uh, uh, doing here is putting a cross on his photo to uh, sh highlight the fact that the Ministry of Interior is the one responsible for repression in Saudi Arabia. 
Uh, the other um, uh, photo here, they're not very clear, but I hope you can see them. Can, can you see them there? Yeah? So you can see the, uh, 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 on, on the right-hand side, um, women relatives of these political prisoners. Uh, some of them are maybe violent, but they haven't gone through trial, so we don't really know. Uh, they are in the streets, surrounded by security forces, and most of them were also arrested, spent some time in prison, then later they were released. Uh, on the, this particular one, they're copying here the uh, strategies of the Midan uh, al-Tahrir in Cairo. They're copying uh, the Tunisian strategies uh, of mobilization. But obviously, we are talking here about very small number. And there is a reason why only small crowds did manage to come to the streets in Saudi Arabia. Um, and this is mainly uh, the severe repression that took place at that moment of the Arab uprising. And new laws were introduced, uh, banning uh, peaceful protest demonstrations and any kind of civil disobedience that was regarded as uh, uh, dangerous and creating chaos in, in, the, uh, in the country because it is a threat to society. But in fact, it was a threat to the ruling family rather than society. Now, what happened? In addition to that mass process, we have this particular group that is called in Arabic Hasim, that is uh, their acronym of the Saudi uh, Civil Society for uh, Political and Civil uh, and Human Rights. So Hasim is the name that this group of people who are all in prison emerged uh, just before the Arab uprising and augmented its activism as a civil society calling for political and civil rights in a country that bans any kind of independent civil society. Um, at the time, uh, uh, the civil society was uh, uh, outlawed, um, and immediately after a group of founders uh, announced uh, the, uh, the establishment of Hassam, uh, they were all uh, uh, be began to be questioned, put uh, in prison for a short period of time, interrogated, then released in order to uh, prepare their cases for the eventual uh, imprisonment of, of those people uh, that took place in 2013 when all of them um, were um, uh, put in um, put in prison and serving long sentences. Uh, the founder of, of this movement, for example, Judge Suleiman al-Rashudi, if you can see him in the middle, um, the, the main three, uh, the middle one with a red head uh, uh, here, and then his colleagues, um, he's a very old judge, almost 80 years old now, but he had a long history of uh, um, sort of calling for um, uh, reform, um, and Mohammed um, Al-Qahtani, another uh, younger, relatively younger professor, um, and Abdullah Hamid, another uh, professor of Arabic literature, um, and their lawyer, Ab Ab Walid Abu Khair, who was later put in prison as well. So um, all these pictures show them in the court. And the interesting thing is um, their discourse was really about uh, human and political rights. They provided a hybrid uh, 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 platform, uh, incorporating uh, international conventions on human rights with uh, Islam. Um, hence uh, the, the term that I use for them as modernists. So what is modernism as understood by those uh, activists who uh, have a long history of engagement with, Islamic, with the Islamic tradition, its texts, and its, uh, its institutions? Modernism basically 
if you uh, want a, 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 a kind of uh, simple definition, is rethinking Islamic text, uh, reforming Islamic institutions. And unfortunate for those people, these two R's, if you like, the rethinking and the reform, happen within the context of repression. Uh, so um, they are a group of uh, uh, religious scholars, uh, thinkers or intellectuals, and youth activists who follow them. They have made uh, the most of social media, uh, establishing websites, uh, using Twitter, Facebook, etc., in order to articulate the quest for political reform. Now, I would hesitate to call them liberals or Islamic liberals, simply because I prefer to use the terminology that uh, actually reflects their thinking. They wouldn't like to see themselves as liberal, but in our quest in the West, for example, in the media, in academic discourse, in our quest to comprehend those people, to understand their project, we feel compelled to impose certain terminology on them or labels. Um, they are not the type of liberals that you would uh, think of in the West. And I think my book in the theoretical part, which I don't want to go into in great detail, looks at this, this terminology of uh, Islamic liberalism or liberal Islamist. Also, it looks at uh, religion and politics. We here in the social science, we have been conditioned to look at religion and politics as two separate spheres. And therefore, we're stuck when we come across uh, movements or ideologies that, that merge the two or cross the boundaries. So, for example, uh, Jewish fundamentalism, Hindu fundamentalism, um, uh, Christian fundamentalism, all of these groups are really looked at in the, in the social science as we learn them here in institutions, in, in universities, as some kind of aberration that those people are not normal. What's wrong with them? Because they're mixing religion and politics. So basically what I'm say, arguing in this book is that we have to move away from our terminology that we have learned them. We have to move away from judging those people by our own standards. So those people, when they call, for example, for civil society, for a constitution, uh, for um, uh, concepts such as uh, peaceful jihad, we all know, we all think that we know what jihad is. Um, it's become one of those words that have uh, crept into every newspaper, every discourse of any kind of uh, observer of the Middle East or the Arab world or Muslim uh, world, that we know what it is. But there isn't a fixed meaning for jihad, and those people are rethinking the word jihad and coming up with a new interpretation. One such interpretation that was propagated by somebody like Abdullah al-Hamid and the followers of Hassan was jihad silmi, that is peaceful jihad, peaceful struggle. So what does that mean? They try to adapt these big old Islamic con concepts to the realities of everyday life in a Muslim country living under an absolute monarchy. So for them, peaceful jihad is to go in the street and call for uh, a change. Uh, peacefully. Obviously that doesn't go well in a country that bans demonstrations. So in a way what they have offered is a way of articulating political change within Islam but their discourse is hybrid which is really interesting. They try to provide a third way between two uh, uh, trends within Islamism itself. Though on the one hand, we have the violent jihadis who think that 
change will come by violence, blowing people up uh, you know, and doing all the stuff that we have been witnessing. So political change comes with violence. And there is the other, the extreme uh, trend which is dominant in Saudi Arabia as an official religious tradition, and that is the uh, loyal Salafis who argue that we leave politics for the rulers of the Muslim community and we do not actually threaten the status quo by any action. So for example, among the Wahhabi tradition, that is the official tradition, uh, 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 talking, criticizing the king or the princes in the newspaper is an act of rebellion, an act of rebellion against the legitimate Muslim ruler. So they, they justify that by looking at Islamic texts, which are very old, um, and say that um, uh, rebellion is not only armed rebellion. They extend the meaning of rebellion to include a whole range of activities, such as tweeting or uh, demonstrating, or even um, uh, writing articles, posting an article on Facebook, etc. So all these acts become rebellion against the legitimate Muslim ruler. Uh, which is an extension of the Sunni theology that developed more than seven uh, centuries ago and imposing it on modern conditions um, and trying to outlaw tweeting, using social media, or even uh, civil disobedience. So they provide those kind of uh, uh, people that are the focus of, of my book uh, a third way between these two extreme positions. And they argue that there is a scope in, within the Muslim tradition for peaceful protest for justice. Um, and therefore, um, in this particular context of Saudi Arabia, the struggle uh, in politics is not actually between a liberal Western-style democracy and an absolute monarch, uh, 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 monarchy that bases its legitimacy on Islam. It's, that's not the struggle. The struggle is over the meaning of divine politics. So we have to understand those people through the prism of their own discourse rather than simply impose our own uh, 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 labels on them to make them accessible to us. And this imposition of labels has a long history and has a political context in the West, for example, simply because um, through public discourse, whether we're writing in academic journals or in the media, um, or when politicians are talking, there is a fixation on Islamism and a fixation for security reasons, legitimate security reasons, that who is our friend and who is our foe. So we want to find out who are the ones, uh, um, who are the ones that are going to cause security threats and who are the ones who are actually ac uh, acceptable. Islamist, as it were. Uh, this kind of focus is legitimate in security studies, but as academics, we're not obliged to take it, and we can think of Islamism in more rigorous ways as basically multiple texts, multiple contexts, and multiple practices. Each is anchored in a particular historical moment with its own challenges and uh, own also limitations. Um, so, Hassan became extremely important um, after the Arab uprising because it was accused of sort of encouraging people to demonstrate in support of the right of political prisoners. They exposed uh, torture in Saudi prison, etc. So they've been in court. These were the pictures that they uh, circulated at the time. 
2011, 12, and 13, when they were going to court and their supporters would tweet, would, would uh, uh, expose uh, what was going on in the courts. Now, by 2013, all of them had been put in, in prison. So does this mean that they are dead now as a group, as a social movement, as a political project? I don't think so. I think the theatrics of the court was extremely unusual in Saudi Arabia, and it circulated the language. The language is extremely important, and that is the language of human rights, which um, is defined in a particular way that is a hybrid way, combining Western <coughs> perception as we know them in international law with the Islamic tradition. So in the book, I discuss their project and what happened to that project after they went to prison. One would be surprised that even at the moment of that Arab uprising, we have an Ummah party establishing its, uh, itself in Saudi Arabia, and the Ummah party uh, just simply announced. It requested uh, authorization to form a political party, but uh, all political parties are banned in Saudi Arabia as much as they are banned in other Gulf countries. So they announced the establishment of an Ummah party, a different group, and they started uh, 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 having communique like a political party would do. But again, uh, the founding fathers of this particular movement uh, were immediately uh, rounded and put in prison. Um, they had a political program, and in the book I discuss uh, what they want. Um, and uh, their project seems to be less local than Hassan, a more a global Islamic project. They uh, also have uh, uh, they use the al-Khilafa al-Rashida, the uh, righteous caliphate, but they're not uh, ISIS affiliates or um, any. They, they established a political party. They did not take arms, but they ended up in prison. Their spokesman, um, who uh, was outside the country, continued to have uh, communiques and post them on YouTube, uh, but he recently died in Turkey where he was uh, seeking asylum. Now, on revolution in the Saudi context, um, in addition to these activist, political, truly political uh, trends that rarely we hear about outside Saudi Arabia, there were other more traditional ulama, religious scholars, who are trying to comprehend the change in, in the Arab world at that critical moment of 2011 and onward. And one of them is a, a very famous uh, 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 religious scholar Salman al-Auda, who uh, thought that uh, he would go beyond his Salafi traditional training as a scholar, as a scholar who uh, belongs to the uh, Saudi tradition, religious tradition, um, and abhor uh, revolution. So for the majority of Saudi official religious scholars, revolution is unheard of, that it is chaos. It is associated with uh, uh, domestic upheaval, threatening lives, property, and also it will lead to the decline of the religious community um, and undermine its security. Um, and this is a Sunni uh, position that is uh, specific to uh, one particular interpretation in Islam. So they propagated that. But Al-Auda, unlike the other uh, religious scholars in Saudi Arabia, wrote a book on revolution and tried to understand it. 
And he tried to understand it from a religious uh, Sunni tradition, but also using a hybrid discourse. This guy is traditionally trained scholar, but he has moved out of this traditionalism and scholastic uh, religious scholars into talking to the youth in a language they understand. He's got millions of followers. I can't remember what they are now, but when I wrote the book, he had more than uh, two million followers on Twitter, he has a media empire, and he addresses the youth in a simple language rather than a religious scholar with reference to multiple sort of uh, historical sources. Uh, He tries to write in ways that appeal to the youth. And in this particular book, he was praising revolution and saying that it is inevitable. Now, he was talking about the Egyptian and Tunisian revolution in this particular book, and he tried to avoid talking about Saudi Arabia. But if you read the book, you really understand what he means. And he didn't want to get in trouble by by talking about Saudi Arabia. And so, in a way, in his view, revolutions become inevitable when all peaceful means are exhausted and don't lead to anything but repression. So in a way, he tried to uh, justify what happened in the Arab world and possibly explain to his Saudi audience that it is not unheard of that revolutions would take place in a country like Saudi Arabia. So he, he looks at that. Then in the book, I look at other younger uh, intellectuals, and one of them is Abdullah al-Malki. And he takes one important issue, and that is applying Sharia, Islamic law. In Saudi Arabia, there's no debate that whether a Muslim country should or should not apply Sharia. But he takes the view that uh, applying Sharia by force is meaningless, without free will. And this is a very interesting modernist position that looks at uh, compulsion in religious practices. He, for example, gives the example of the, the prayer but he says, you know, we don't debate whether Muslims should or shouldn't pray five times a day. It's one of the tenets of Islam. But he says that without free will, this order to, to pray is meaningless. Uh, you, you have to choose to pray for your prayer to be meaningful. Otherwise, there's no point if somebody forces you to close your shop and go to pray and you're just going along the motion to pray. So in a a way, he introduces a new concept um, um, uh, in the Salafi context of Saudi Arabia. One thing we have to uh, remember that we're talking about a country where such debates were not very common. In in the Arab world, in Egypt and other places, they were extremely popular maybe 100 years ago, um, these kind of questions that bothered this group of of activists and writers. But in Saudi Arabia, it is extremely difficult to uh, uh, discuss Sharia uh, and put a question mark on whether it should be applied by force or as a matter of choice. So his uh, idea was that Sharia should be a matter of choice, not force, for it to be meaningful and for it to uh, bring justice, which is the ultimate reason why Sharia is there. So this kind of position got Abdullah al-Malki also in trouble with the traditional hardline Salafis, that how could you possibly debate whether Sharia uh, should or shouldn't be applied? It should be taken for granted, that it should be applied. in a way, um, he, he looks at also uh, a critique of Islamist movement um, in Saudi Arabia and in other 
places, especially in uh, um, Egypt, after the rise of the Muslim Brotherhood to power. So uh, there was, uh, the Saudis were enchanted by the experience of uh, the Arab countries going through elections and bringing an Islamist uh, movement to power. But they weren't sort of taking it for granted that this is the choice. They, had to, they put a big question mark on what happens when an Islamist movement uh, gets in power, and Abdullah al-Malki reflected on that in multiple uh, writings uh, and books. So in a way, there is a critical sense uh, that uh, you can't take for granted all the uh, uh, slogans of, of the Islamist movement, such as Islam is the solution. So Abdullah al-Malki looks at this, which is the slogan of the Muslim Brotherhood, and uh, uh, one would imagine that, uh, well, he's critical of the Muslim Brotherhood, but there is a kind of mutation going on in Saudi Arabia in response to what was happening in the Arab world at the time. Um, so uh, there is a chapter on this particular person and his, his writing. Another one is um, religious, the religious roots of repression. This is extremely important. I don't know if you, um, if you follow Saudi Arabia. Uh, every act that the government takes justifies by saying it's according to Sharia. So for example, recently they've executed 47 uh, people in, in mass execution. Um, and they said that this is uh, Islamic law. It's not us, we're just simply applying Islamic law. As if there is one Islamic law or as if there is one interpretation of Islamic law. So uh, Muhammad al-Abdul Karim looks at this argument and says that you cannot justify repression by resorting to religion, by hiding behind religion. There is a political problem, and the political problem is actually repression. And you cannot always justify it by just blaming it on Sharia or saying that hide behind the Sharia to, to justify beheading, flogging, etc. So in a way... Uh, the religious root of repression are extremely important in Saudi Arabia because this is the language the government justifies um, um, beheadings uh, or putting people in prison. Um, and one should remember that the courts are uh, run by uh, judges who are graduates, most of them, of the, uh, uh, one of the local Islamic universities um, in Riyadh, and most of the time they claim that they apply the Sharia as they understand it. So here we have um, an example of a young scholar who had religious training in a very traditional way, but he was able to move beyond the limitations of the Saudi Wahhabi tradition and uh, deconstruct the roots of this repression, especially if they are uh, uh, articulated in religious terms. So Muhammad Abdul Karim writes several, wrote several books in order to explain how uh, uh, um, the, the um, uh, repression uh, takes the form of a religious uh, umbrella, uh, well, or is conducted under a relig religious umbrella in a country like Saudi Arabia. And he also got in trouble and went to prison for a very short time and then came out uh, simply because he asked a question on Facebook. He posted an article asking what would happen to Saudi Arabia. Is Saudi Arabia a nation or just simply people attached to a royal 
family. And what happens to Saudi Arabia as a country if there are disputes among the royal family or members of the royal family? So these kind of questions, daring questions, um, are extremely dangerous in Saudi Arabia. So he was called from his office in the university where he teaches and, uh, and interrogated uh, and put in prison for a short time, then he was released. So um, these kind of questions, you know, Western journalists can freely ask them uh, here in London or Washington, you know, royal succession and disputes um, uh, among royalty. But in Saudi Arabia, these kind of questions are extremely uh, dangerous and you could end up in prison if you even speculate that there is a dispute between different members of, of, uh, of the royal family. Um, so then there is the big D word, <laughs> democracy. So democracy, again, it was one of the slogans that was extremely important for the protesters across Arab squares from uh, Tunisia to Egypt to, other, to Bahrain to other areas. Um, and again, we have an, an intellectual here, Mohammed Al-Ahmari, who was... Um, engaged in looking at democracy and monitoring Salafi resistance to democracy. Because in Saudi Arabia, uh, the Salafi tradition, the official tradition, regards democracy as an alien political system. And uh, imported from the West, it's a corrupting uh, political system and it will definitely make dilute Islam, sideline it, uh, make it irrelevant. So there is this... Uh, uh, rejection of democracy among uh, some sections of uh, the Saudi religious establishment. Mohammed al-Abdul Karim, who had a history of Islamism, engagement with Islamism, uh, looks at democracy and, uh, in a new way and uh, uses Islamic history and going beyond Islamic history. In fact, he uses human history to say a simple message that we can't just reject democracy because we think it's a Western invention, and therefore repression is good. Uh, he argues that democracy is about a free spirit. So he, he moves the debate to a sort of a philosophical level in order to detach democracy from its Western history and heritage and try to make it appealing or acceptable to a Salafi audience in Saudi Arabia. Um, so for him, uh, democracy is a human uh, uh, condition that is not specific to the West. And he looks at the history of several societies, and sometimes he turns sort of into anthropological uh, um, uh, insight to prove the fact that uh, people just like freedom. It is the, the aspiration of people to live in a, a free society uh, that we call now democracy. So for Muhammad al-Ahmari, he is trying to uh, look at uh, some concepts that are problematic in Saudi Arabia, but using uh, his knowledge of Islamic history together with his experience of living in the West. He was in the US for several years uh, before 9-11 and then returned to Saudi Arabia. Um, he, again, got in trouble in Saudi Arabia. And uh, the interesting thing is that these kind of intellectuals who don't, uh, he is not a religious scholar. So he's an intellectual who uh, studied history and uh, came to London to do his uh, uh, PhD and then worked in uh, Islamic sort of forums in the US. 
Uh, he returned to Saudi Arabia after 9-11, but um, he found that the space for him to write and work was really limited. Um, there is a self-rejection of his uh, uh, ideas. And it all uh, crystallized around one incident in 2007 during the Israeli invasion of uh, Lebanon um, and the Hezbollah uh, um, uh, kidnapping of Israeli soldiers and the bombing of southern uh, Lebanon. The quite a lot of the Saudi ulama argued that you cannot give charity to the southern Lebanese Shia because simply they are Shia. And it's not uh, a good thing to uh, provide them with charity. So Muhammad al-Ahmari wrote a, a provocative argument saying that we should move away from creedal analysis. Like you cannot see the world through Islam, uh, uh, the creed that these are the rejectionists, the Shia, and therefore we cannot help them. Here we are in uh, the realm of politics, and therefore we need to provide political analysis rather than religious analysis of every single incident that takes place in, in, the, um, in the Arab world and beyond. So he felt that his ideas were rejected, then he moved to Qatar, and now he's running a research institute there. So basically this is like a sample of the people that I talk about in this book. Let me just uh, conclude and then maybe allow more time for um, discussion. The future. Um, I, I want to conclude with this picture because it is really uh, symptomatic of what is going on in Saudi Arabia at the moment in terms of the propaganda, in terms of covering up the challenges that the country faces. Uh, since, um, I must say, I finished the book uh, before Salman became, uh, it went into print before Salman came to, uh, uh, became uh, king. And I think, I don't know if uh, Hearst, I think Hearst gave me the opportunity to add a couple of sentences at the end of, uh, of the book to reflect the change that had taken place. Um, there are multiple challenging. What is obvious is, in my view, and this is in the conclusion, is that this trend I describe in this book is more threatening to the Saudi regime than jihadi violence, for a very simple reason. Jihadi violence, doesn't achieve much, really, apart from killing innocent people in the streets, creating fear, chaos, etc. But it doesn't really threaten governments. In fact, it has the opposite effect, and it has done so in Saudi Arabia itself. From 2003 to 2008, Saudi society was uh, undergoing serious challenges of terrorism, but the terrorist crisis at the time uh, silenced all voices. And what is happening now is that King Salman and uh, his uh, crown prince, Hamad bin Nayef, and deputy crown prince, his son, um, Hamad bin Salman, on the other side, um, are trying to um, uh, keep the lid on a boiling pressure cooker uh, using a different strategy. The terrorism is, uh, threat of terrorism is one of them to intimidate people. But the challenges they face are multiple. The first one is the is a political uh, challenge, and that is related to the concentration of power in the hands of these two people with the king just supervising um, uh, the affairs of, of the state and excluding a whole range of other junior or uh, senior second-generation princes. Um, 
In the last three, four months, there had been a lot of uh, uh, articles and, uh, in fact, letters circulating on the Internet by other princes who are not happy about this concentration of the trinity that is governing Saudi Arabia at the moment. And um, it's interesting that these princes who are excluded, marginalized, are using the same mechanism as, the, as society. They are so powerless that they resort to the Internet to circulate their petitions, saying that we have been excluded, there is a concentration of power, we need more say, the country is going through a crisis. Uh, but obviously there's no discussion of these kind of uh, Internet forums in the official media. Um, so that's the first challenge. The second one is the economic challenge. Oil prices are actually going down the drain, reaching like $30 a barrel at the moment. And for the first time, there was the massive budget deficit in Saudi Arabia announced just recently, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the government was committed or had been committed to uh, development projects that need a lot of uh, uh, money, but most of the time they will be put on hold and new ones will not be initiated. So the legitimacy of the Saudi government as the initiator of development is actually being undermined at the moment as a result of the decline in oil prices. Yes, it's got more resource, resources and reserves that it could uh, um, um, start uh, using. It can borrow locally in the local market and, and lessen its exposure to world uh, uh, the markets and, and borrowing from outside Saudi Arabia. But it is a, an issue. Um, and the uh, uh, third challenge is regional. And this, this image, uh, comes from the, uh, uh, the moment when uh, Sal King Salman declared that uh, um, the war on Yemen was to start in March 2015, and the propaganda was that now Saudi Arabia is flying with two wings, uh, one on either side of the king, and the war on Yemen was extremely important to keep the lid on this sort of uh, uh, pressure cookers here, Iran is extremely important as, uh, as, uh, uh, to be used uh, as an excuse. And <clears throat> directing anger towards Iran is extremely efficient in Saudi Arabia. So uh, the final challenge is the sectarianism. Uh, today, people who had been so opposed to the government and its policies are backing the king in the war in Yemen, in, in uh, the recent uh, uh, diplomatic incident with Iran, um, the uh, uh, storming of the Saudi embassy in Tehran, and, uh, and, and the expulsion of the Iranian mission, diplomatic mission from Saudi Arabia. All this is uh, applauded in Saudi Arabia by people. Uh, it is important that the, uh, as the uh, religious umbrella that united Saudi, mainly Wahhabism, before, and divided them at the same time, is beginning to crumble because it, it's mutated. There are multiple trends with it. There is a lot of competition from ISIS or Daesh in Syria and Iraq because they are claiming that they are defending Sunnis in both countries. And therefore, the competition with the Saudi leadership is extremely difficult to take 
um, and therefore the Saudi king wants to outdo Daesh, and outdoing Daesh involves bombing Yemen because Yemen is supposed, the Houthis in Yemen are supposed to be allies of Iran, etc. So the view from Riyadh that these regional upheavals can be uh, used in order to maintain uh, the Saudi regime. So what happened to the the story of modernism. Modernism, I think, in Saudi Arabia, if, if there is a conclusion, and it's an, ob I would say, objective uh, conclusion, it's, uh, it's got a chance, but at the moment, uh, the, these regional economic political challenges are overshadowing the quest for political reform. So their discourse has been sidelined. It is there, and it would be activated um, probably in the future, simply because they uh, provide a way out of the stagnation of the Saudi political system, not by claiming they want to become Western liberal Democrats, but by uh, looking at their original divine politics, redefining it, rethinking its concepts, and reforming the institutions in ways that correspond to the current needs of a modern society in the 21st century. So, uh, in the book, I think I've given a voice to a group of people who may not be heard except in reports on uh, human rights violations um, on Saudi Arabia and trying to understand their project. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with every uh, uh, item on their agenda, but at least I was able to capture uh, what uh, they uh, were struggling for. And I do appreciate their struggle, I think, in a repressive context like Saudi Arabia. In fact, uh, the interesting thing is um, I, uh, I didn't talk about the methodology as I was based in London and cannot go to Saudi Arabia for similar reasons to the people I, I was talking about. So uh, um, I, I was corresponding with this, uh, with some of the people, and I managed to meet the ones who were not in prison uh, in uh, London and in Beirut um, several times. Uh, but uh, one of the uh, uh, Hassam uh, activists, he was put in prison, and one of the charges against him was that they found on his computer one of my books and one of the Arabic articles. So reading me uh, in Saudi Arabia is, is a charge that you could actually go to prison as a result of writing a book or owning one of my books. So um, I felt guilty that this person was, was put in prison simply because he read my, one of my books, which is a history of Saudi Arabia. And that's uh, Muhammad al-Bjadi. So in a way, writing this book is to pay homage to their struggle under a very, very repressive context. And thank you for listening. Well, I think you agree that's an excellent talk that uh, <coughs> revealed a side of Saudi politics and indeed Saudi society and Saudi intellectual life that doesn't get a, a great deal of focus. We have plenty of time for questions. Um, if you stick your hand up, uh, I will recognize who you are, and then you can say, if you just say who you are before you ask the question, and if you wait for the microphone to come to you. There's one down here. Thanks. There you go. Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> can you hear me? Yeah. Good. Thank you. Thank you for your speech. 
Um, I'm, my name's David Harrington. I'm a member of the public. I, I'm just, you touched on some of this, but I'm slightly confused. I do, why is the Arab world in general so repressive in the 21st century? Easy one for starters. Yes, yes, yes. Well, first, I don't think there's anything Arab about repression. All human societies have experienced it throughout. Sorry, their yeah, yeah. Just be, can I stop you there? I know that. I mean, yeah. it's that's sort of, if with all due respect, fairly obvious. And yeah. the French went through revolutions and, the Amer and so on and so forth. I'm talking about today, and if you look at the world generally, it seems to me that it's very predominant in in the Arab world. I would say that you know, it's the project of the nation state that was a complete and utter failure. Some of these states started after the First World War, others became more consolidated in the, after the Second World War as a result of liberation uh, movements, etc. And that, that Arab uh, well, uh, state order was extremely repressive from day one. Um, and therefore, um, it has continued, and the wave of, of democratization that other uh, regions, for example, in uh, South Latin America, South America, in Europe, etc., in Asia, bypassed the Arab world. And uh, in addition to the internal dynamics that maintain this repression, I think we have to remember that the Arab world is probably the only region where there is still ongoing occupation, there is still ongoing uh, uh, connection with ex-superpowers. It's an open platform, the Arab world, and therefore it's very difficult for uh, uh, democratic forces to emerge simply because, for example, after the Second World War, during the liberation movement, some national, liberal, uh, national leaders suppressed everybody for the cause of liberating the country. But, you know, it, it is, they haven't uh, allowed these societies to to flourish under a non-democratic system. And the con continuous ongoing connection with the West is extremely important. There's, they use the Israeli-Palestinian cause and, and occupation as an excuse to suppress uh, uh, countries around it, from Nasser's Egypt to uh, Syria, Iraq, etc., that we are at war. And therefore, we cannot allow these democratic forces to emerge and flourish. So they are, they, they, there's nothing essentialist or specific about the Arab region that makes it uh, uh, an area where repression is still ongoing, but there are uh, specific historical reasons and uh, uh, political reasons that had made repression sustainable over the last 50, 60 years. Thank you. Could you hand the microphone to the lady along the aisle and then you next? Thank you. Uh, Neve McBurney, a recent SARAS graduate. Can I ask two questions? No, if you're quick. Great. Um, the first one, on Salman al-Awza, I'm intrigued that you put him in this context, um, given his historical relationship with the Sahwa movement, uh, the Islamic Awakening movement, which some would argue uh, had affiliations to uh, al-Qaeda um, in Saudi Arabia. So I'd just be interested as to why you put him in this context. And second of all, um, in your excellent first book, A History of, uh, History of Saudi Arabia, um, you've detailed very similar... Um, conditions um, in the 1980s, 1982, um, the economic pressures on the kingdom, the regional pressures from the Iran-Iraq war, um, and also the domestic pressures, but ironically then from the Olamet. So I'm just intrigued as to why you think now change will happen or could happen or, or why it's the tipping point possibly at the moment. Yeah. 
Yes, thank you. Yes, I do. I mean, I explain in the book why I include Salman al Uda. Uh, there's quite a lot of hype about Salman al-Uda from the 1990s, and in contesting the Saudi state, the book, I fully uh, explain his position and his opposition. But his affiliation with al-Qaeda, I think, I don't know where you heard that or what evidence you have. Oh, I'd I be mean, not him directly, but I mean the wider Sahwa movement and then his affiliation to but, it. Well, the wider Sahwa movement doesn't necessarily have an affiliation with al-Qaeda. Yeah? So there are uh, groups who have sprung out of the Wahhabi tradition uh, who justify Al-Qaeda. I mean, just recently they've uh, executed uh, Faris al-Shwer, who was the ideologue of Al-Qaeda, and he was uh, uh, using Saudi Wahhabi text to justify Al-Qaeda at the time, in 2003. Yeah, But I think it is uh, Al-Auda... Um, you have to look at those people as uh, multiple texts, as I said, contexts and practices. Uh, one person, uh, you know, just because they are Islamists doesn't mean that they are fixed on their ideas. They do change and mutate. As he did. I don't think he did. I mean, he, he was against the uh, jihad in Afghanistan, and he was preaching to Saudi youth not to go to Afghanistan. Then in uh, 2003, he was accused by the Saudi press of encouraging Saudi youth to go and do jihad in Iraq. And this was published in Al-Watan, who's like supposedly uh, in a liberal newspaper. He took them to court and he won the case. And he, there was no proof that he encouraged Saudis to go to Iraq. Uh, he said you could support them through charity, but you don't go and fight in Iraq. And he gave an Islamic justification why. He said, you know, uh, foreign fighters are bad news in any conflict. So there is a hype in Saudi Arabia when the government feels that uh, somebody like Al-Auda becomes extremely important. Um, he was banned from travel uh, after the Egyptian revolution. He was going to Egypt to give talks because of the Muslim Brotherhood at the time. And uh, he started publishing in Al-Ahram, which was unheard of before during Mubarak, that somebody like him would be able to publish in, in Egyptian newspapers. He was banned from travel. And the, only, uh, he, the ban was lifted only when uh, recently, uh, when the government wanted the Islamists to promote its war in Yemen as a war against those infidel Shia, etc. The history, the history, yes, in the 1980s, we, there were some challenges. Um, and uh, in a way, the Islamist movement was a product of that challenging moment in the 80s when the oil prices went down, there was a, a decline in, in the infrastructure. And by 1990, they, it erupted, as, as I explained in the book. So, so why is it different this time? Mm. There is a different context. There is a regional upheaval around Saudi Arabia. There are different uh, demographics, youth population, there's social media, there are all sorts of other things, more education, more scholarship, more aspirations. Whether, I'm not predicting that you know, we're going to have a revolution in Saudi Arabia, but what I'm saying is that there, is, um, there are mutations that I was able to observe. My name is Alexis Lefranc. I live in Riyadh and I work for the British Council there. Um, I was wondering whether you could say a word about um, the position of the East thinkers with regards to public opinion, because you mentioned that um, you think they're much more dangerous to the regime than uh, violent jihadis, but at the same time they are 
um, in competition with calls to um, go and do jihad in Syria, for example, from rural, many rural ulemas. My impression is that they might be quite popular among um, urban educated elites, but not so much among the less educated rural population. Yes, yes, you're absolutely right, and the, their audiences, I discussed the audience of those people. Um, uh, they are um, in competition, as always, uh, with other groups. Um, you know, the, the more we have of the sectarian, you know, uh, uh, issues that are going around Saudi Arabia and in, inside Saudi Arabia, for example, in the Eastern Province, the more the populist ones, uh, populist clerics who uh, inflame the imagination by uh, talking about the Sunni grandiose, the responsibility toward our Muslims, the pan-Islamic sort of uh, dimension of, of Islamism is going to be more relevant to sections of society. Now, in terms of, you can't quantify the impact of the various groups, which is impossible, because you know, in, in a repressive society, you can't run a poll and say, you know, who, is, who supports uh, Hassam and who, who supports the jihadis or ISIS? <laughs> it's very difficult. So uh, we can only actually speculate and study. But you're absolutely right, your observation. These are people who are educated, whether traditionally as religious scholars or uh, as historians or literature specialists. Um, they try to reach a wider audience. Uh, what is interesting is the more educated people, the more they go to university, they're going to be engaging with this kind of literature. But there is a whole section who likes the populist preachers who inflame the imagination by talking about uh, you know, uh, not only violent things, but you know, marriage, how to uh, treat your wife, how to choose your wife. These have an audience too. So the, the, the public sphere is saturated with divine politics in various ways. Okay, I've got two questions. Yes, uh, the, the higher question first and then the... No, no, yeah, you're there. No. Him. Yeah. And then you next after that. Abdul Qavi. Uh, two uh, individuals uh, very much in the forefront in Saudi Arabia. First of all, Salman bin Abdulaziz. There are news reports I have seen in Arabic press in Lebanon and elsewhere that he is not really fully in possession of his faculties. And the second person is Bandar bin Sultan, who until he was dismissed as the head of national security, uh, was very prominent and was championing uh, jihad against the Iran in 2013-2014. Can you uh, throw some light on the personality of these two characters, please, and how influential they are still. Why don't you hold that question, yeah. and then the gentleman, if you just hand it, that's great. Next. Well, my name is uh, Suzuki, uh, Hitoshi Suzuki. I'm from Japan and uh, Semigama Mentor uh, Institution. And, uh, well, my speciality is on uh, Iran. So, uh, well, uh, in uh, recently, uh, very recently, of course, uh, I'm obliged to uh, observe the Saudi situations as an outsider. And uh, as an outsider, my general impression is that uh, uh, the Saudi political context 
uh, is always uh, uh, under uh, the some uh, special uh, international uh, privileged uh, position uh, of international uh, spheres. Uh, of course, it's uh, because of uh, oil-producing country and uh, Aramco things. Uh, so, uh, to what extent your uh, analysis and uh, study is uh, uh, reflecting uh, on uh, this basic issue? Uh, okay, and one more question in this round. Yes. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm Zainab. Um, I'm uh, doing Middle Eastern politics as I was. Um, my question is, well, you have mentioned in this lecture and also in one of your recent publications um, that these um, new moderate or third-way Islamists are the biggest threat to the Saudi establishment. To what extent do you think they will be able to attract different segments of the populations that are not like in the Saudi circle of cooperation or in Saudi's... Um, allies, like to what extent would, be, they, would they be able to attract, for example, the marginalized religious minorities or um, those who are completely marginalized by the discourse? Yeah. Right. Well, the first question on Salman and his, uh, uh, whether he's in control of his uh, body, I mean, um, faculties, uh, his mind, yes. Well, he's 80 year old. Okay, uh, so, uh, and there had been a lot of rumors about his health, like always, uh, in Saudi Arabia. Uh, over the last uh, 20 years, since King Fahad uh, uh, in the 80s, uh, there had been rumors about the health of Saudi kings. But it is actually uh, symptomatic of the opaqueness of Saudi Arabia that we can only discuss the health of the king, the body of the king and the body of the nation. They're two, two related things. Uh, because we, we uh, try to penetrate uh, the, the Saudi politics and we could only see the king as aging and Western diplomats exchange rumors about the health of the king and he wasn't able to respond to this question, he lost his mind, etc. But I think at the moment he's got these two people that I, uh, uh, are, are on the board who are running the show for him. Um, also, I mean, the interesting thing is that there had been a rumor that he suffers from he suffered from Alzheimer, and it's interesting. I heard another rumor saying that his excluded sons are spreading this rumor <laughs> because they, he favored the one of the youngest, and there are more able ones who had been sidelined. But. I think you know, we can't really analyze these rumors uh, un unless we see them as a reflection of some deep issues in Saudi politics and lack of transparency and opaqueness. And Bandar bin Sultan, he has been, again, he had, uh, we had rumors about his health and depressions and alcoholic, etc. But I don't want to go into that because that's irrelevant. I prefer to um, focus on more interesting social political trends than the health of the king or, or uh, somebody like Bandar Bun Sultan. As Saudi Arabia as a privileged, uh, has a privileged position in the international community because of oil, and I think we are beginning uh, to see a shift um, in that position. And I think that is what is worrying Saudi Arabia the most, is this shift from the world being dependent, or America mainly, dependent on Saudi oil, which no longer is the case, 
uh, America is, uh, Saudi Arabia feels at the moment, I think, like an orphan that, uh, who had been abandoned by the superpower. And all these uh, regional wars, the chaotic foreign policy of Saudi Arabia, the constant seeking of appeal among Muslims, calling upon Muslims to uh, come. And uh, today, I think there is a, a meeting to, uh, uh, among the Muslim uh, uh, organization, the World Muslim League, to support Saudi Arabia in its war on terror, to have a coalition against uh, the Houthis, all among the Arabs and the Muslims, seeking Pakistan, seeking Turkey. This shows that Saudi Arabia is really in this uh, position that is probably related to the uh, uh, oil issue and also to the rise and rehabilitation of Iran. You mean when Saudi Arabia loses the support of the international community, then it's very difficult. It's very difficult what kind of pressures would be put on Saudi Arabia. And nobody seems to be interested. I mean, you know, it's not a country where uh, there is a Western, at the moment, in five years' time, I don't know. But at the moment, there is no interest in uh, making Saudi Arabia change. In fact, there is the opposite, that just leave it as it is at the moment. We don't want another hot spot in the Middle East. There's enough around Saudi Arabia going on. Yeah. Um, in terms of the threat, uh, Zainab's question, uh, whether, yes, these, uh, are, their discourse, their program is a threat. Otherwise, they wouldn't be put in prison and with 15 years of, of, of sentences on 80-year-old academics. <laughs> it sounds like excessive. Uh, but whether they can appeal to a wider audience, they have actually, and this is part of their threat. So if you're talking about the minorities, we're talking about the Shia. Uh, there is quite a lot of support, and also Hassam itself distinguished its program by taking the cause of Shia uh, political prisoners, which has never been done before. And therefore, this kind of non-sectarian uh, human right approach is threatening, because if the Shia campaign for their own rights separately and the Sunnis separately, then there's no national politics. And the Shia had been demonstrating for years, decades, since 1979. They're not a threat because it is confined in one area and there's no solidarities. But any group that creates these kind of solidarities becomes a serious threat. Right, right, right at the back there, yeah. Sorry to make you run up the stairs. Thank you, Dr. Mbdawi. Uh, my name is Majid Madayan. I'm a student here at the LSE. Um, can we ever understand divine politics of Saudi Arabia without juxtapositioning them with the divine politics of their existential other, which is the, the Iranian? And can repression ever go away as long as that Hannibal is at the gate? Thank you. Right. Sorry, can uh, uh, we understand divine politics in Saudi Arabia without the existential threat of Iran? Is that the question? Yeah, okay, yeah. And, yeah. Can I ask two questions, or do I have to confine myself to one? Quickly. 
Okay, um, so the first one is, uh, thank you very much for the talk, I really enjoyed it. Um, and you discussed a lot of the political motivations for uprisings. I was thinking with the recent budget, which is being called by some an austerity budget, I'm, I'm not adopting that description, but uh, do you think there could be sort of um, an economic justification for um, very different kinds, but economically driven? That's the first question. Um, the second question, um, is about the term modernists. And uh, if you allow me to just open a discussion about it, um, for two reasons. The first is it's um, calling these reformists modernists. I wonder if it makes the state and al-Saud sound like they're traditionalists by contrast. And um, what I find very remarkable about them is that they seem to me like ultra-modernists. In a sense, they're anti-history. They destroy so much of the anthropological history of Saudi Arabia, you know? Things in Mecca around it. They build massive malls, massive. They're like, so they're very anti-history. So uh, um, I, I wonder if calling these people modernists makes, as I would sound like traditionalists, when to me they're you know, they don't seem. And the second reason is maybe the term modernist, I say that um, because to me it, it cannot be separated from um, the ideological project and imperialism and sort of, you know, taming the uncivilized sort of. Um, thank you. Thanks. Oh, no, could you hand the microphone along the line to the, the, the uh, Thank you. Do you have a question? Yeah. Thank you. Um, Nori Vegis. I just had a, a question about, sort of follows on from the terminology point. And um, at, the, at the start of your talk, you talked about Islamism uh, and the obsession in our media with Islamism. And it's something that surprises me as well. You talked about um, three, three groups, uh, violent jihadis, um, loyal, loyal Salafis, and sort of a third way. And I wonder if by grouping all of those groups together under the term Islamism, does it sort of empty it, empty it of meaning? And I suppose in a way you could imagine that the majority, though not all Saudis, will fall somewhere along that spectrum of those three groups. And does that mean they're all Islamists rather than Muslims? And I, I think it's an important question because it allows us or it makes us ask what the boundaries of part of your talk was. Um, I think in some of the examples you showed of people who were opposers, you showed one guy who was sort of opposing the nation state, one guy opposing religious groups, one guy opposing the, the, the establishment. And so the question of what political opposition in Saudi Arabia for somebody like me who's an outsider onlooker, it sort of throws up what the frameworks are that are relevant and, and how you actually disaggregate, you know, Wahhabi versus state or how, how they overlap. And I was wondering if you could comment on that as well. Right, yes. There is a theoretical discussion in the book, which I didn't want to go into in great detail, about uh, the word Islamism uh, and its offshoot, like political Islam, fundamentalism, etc., and modernism. So with, with modernism, it's basically um, understood, and I use apply it in the sense that uh, people who rethink Islamic texts and uh, seek reforming institutions uh, and practices. And there are examples of how they do that. So to just give you an example, the notorious uh, religious police in Saudi Arabia that you, everybody heard of. Um, and this is based, the establishment of this uh, religious police dates back to the beginning of the state when um, there is an injunction in, in, in the Islamic texts uh, in the Quran 
to say that you have to command right and prohibit uh, wrong. So this is translated as an institution of vigilante who go in the streets trying to look for immoral behavior, <coughs> catching men and women in um, cafes if they're not married, in a car, etc. So that's, that's the way uh, the command, commanding right and prohibiting wrong is translated into a state institution that we call the religious police in English, but it is the Hay'a in, in Arabic. So what, for example, Abdullah al-Hamid does is uh, uses the concept of hisba, which is commanding right and uh, prohibiting wrong, and say that it should be developed as an ombudsman or a civil society to watch not men and women's behavior in the street, but the corruption of the government. So this is the modernism that he is talking about, and this is why I use it. Um, so these kind of concepts go back to the Islamic theology, but he uses and reinterprets them to say that hisba means civil society today. That is a space to check on the government protect the individual. That's his interpretation of it. And this is why the word modernism uh, is appropriate, I think, and this is why I use it. On Islamism, the same thing, you know, there is a spectrum. What is Islamism? Uh, I mean, you know, sometimes Muslims themselves, uh, uh, the Islamists that we call Islamists, reject the label Islamist. But it is interesting that uh, what, what Islamism in this particular context means is multiple things. There are Islamists who want a caliphate, Islamists who are just simply uh, uh, commanding right and prohibiting wrong. Uh, some Islamists who are happy with missionary activities. There are Islamists who want an Islamic state, others who want to apply Sharia. So there is a, ho a whole range of demands that are associated with these political and social movements. Uh, some of these Islamists want just simply a, a, a moral position. Others argue that we ha want to have an Islamic solution to everything, from medicine to economics to but that's not everybody. And uh, in the Saudi context, there are all these kind of groups are represented. The fact that I, I chose to focus on this one, simply because I haven't done the research on, uh, on them before in a detailed way. Uh, but the, it doesn't mean that these are the only options available. Now, whether we continue to use the word Islamism or uh, stop using it and say Muslims, I think there is a justification for using it uh, to distinguish particular projects. So not everybody who uh, uh, just wears a beard and uh, preaches is an Islamist. But there are projects that are associated with divine politics, the, the, the fusion between religion and politics. That is not specific to Muslims, but we could see it across the globe, from Hinduism to Jewish uh, groups to you know, Christian groups. Um, so that, that's my answer to, to that question. In terms of uh, the modernism, ultra-modern, I, I got a little bit confused. I, I call those people modernists, but uh, you were saying that it makes the Saudi state as traditionalist. I didn't say that. Um, I mean, yes, they've destroyed uh, uh, buildings around Mecca, but that has nothing to do with uh, modernism or traditionalism. Destruction of religious sites and archaeological sites in Mecca are done for different reasons. 
um, uh, one of them is sort of you know obliterating memory and history. Um, so I'm not sure um, I understood your question. On the budget, whether now the, we have a, a deficit and uh, uh, we are going to have different economic policies, I think that's already started, you know, you're right. But I'm more interested in the uh, political implications. I'm not sure one can actually predict that, you know, with low oil prices, with less welfare, the Saudi people are going to start a revolution. I think that would probably be very, very uh, silly thing to predict. Yeah? So there will be mutations, changes, uh, new practices emerging. But we can't say that, you know, simply because the, the government doesn't have uh, enough money as it used to, it does still have a lot of money, but not as much as, as, as before. We're going to have all this youth rising and demonstrating. I think these predictions really don't make sense to me anyway. And it's, it's, there's a lot of determinism in this argument that, you know, which, which I've talked about with, associated with the Rontier state model, saying that the government buys the loyalty of its citizens. I'm not sure it's a very strong argument. Uh, in order to understand why the, uh, the resilience of the Saudi monarchy, I think you need to go on the Middle East Center website, download one of the articles, uh, one of the uh, paper series that I've, I've just, uh, it was put on, on the web to explain it. It's not simply about oil and distribution. There are more factors to be included in the analysis. And the first question about Iran. Uh, yes, Iran as an existential threat yes, to understand divine politics. But divine politics existed in Saudi Arabia before Iran became a problem. Uh, when Saudi Arabia was under the thumb of Iran during the Shah, uh, divine politics was lively and uh, going in Saudi Arabia. So it hasn't really uh, has a historical precedent over Iran. Now it is used to justify uh, a position against Iran. But I think historically, uh, the, this divine politics in Saudi Arabia is, you know, has a long history before the antagonism with Iran. So I don't think it makes any difference, really. Right. Do we still have a question up there? First of all, thank you for your speech. Uh, I would like to ask you, you, you that's as an answer to the previous question, the uh, failure of the nation state in the Middle East. And we read like uh, day and night, you know, these days about the sectarian identity that prevails over the uh, national identities in uh, Middle Eastern countries. So I'd like to ask you, in terms of a distinct national identity, uh, where do we stand at the moment in Saudi Arabia? Is there one? That's a good question. Mm. And there's, yeah, the question here, um, I will come to you, I promise. The question here, that, that. My name's Nurgis, so I'm an LLM student here at LSE. Um, my question is, um, how do women feature in the discourse or, or the project of the modernists? Okay, and then there was one, another question a bit further down. Hi, I'm Amira. I'm a student at SOAS. Um, I, I just want to go back to the question that was asked earlier about the, the use of the word uh, modernist, because I think it is very important. I, I probably echo 
I don't think she's here anymore. <laughs> but I echo uh, her, her, her thoughts on this. I think it's problematic on two different levels. Uh, one of them perhaps addresses the gentleman that asked the first question, and this idea of why, why is the Arab world so messy. Um, I think that the answer to that has to do with the project of modernity at large. Uh, and at the same time, as she was highlighting, uh, modernity suggests modern, suggests progressive, suggests Western, which in, in the Arab, uh, I mean, I, I'm, as an Egyptian, I know that can be very problematic for many people, uh, this discourse of, oh, it's the West telling us again what's right and what's wrong. So I, I think that there's like different layers to this. So I think it's, it's important. I think my, and also my question is, uh, I'm assuming the audience for this book is, a Western audience, or uh, how? Because the title appeals to who? I guess that's what my question is. Thank you. My question can be glib, simplistic, and even quite naive. But I was I was thinking that um, the area the Middle East, the area, I don't know much about the Middle East, blessed with oil and natural resources. Do you think that these natural resources, and Saudi Arabia, I think, uh, was doing revolution all the time, and with so much money, printing books, and, and creating uh, the ideology that it needed to create. I'm wondering, whether the Middle East, uh, uh, w the money brought them power rather than identity. And is it not dangerous for Saudi Arabia to be political? Should it not be like maybe the Vatican uh, to, to preserve Islam? Because if this, um, uh, uh, if Saudi Arabia would adopt modernism and the rethinking the whole Sunni thing, uh, ideology, would crumble. And the final question, uh, the man in the woolen hat. Thank you. Um, at the beginning of the lecture, Dr. Rashid said um, that every, uh, every major Arab country had, uh, had witnessed protests, but there was no protest in Saudi Arabia. Um, however, she didn't explain the reasons. She said it's repression. And um, if it was by simple comparative analysis, if it was repression, it would be, um, we wouldn't see any protests um, in Egypt or Syria or even Libya. However, we, uh, we did so. We did so protest. We did so a revolution. But we didn't see anything in Saudi Arabia. Um, basically suggesting that there is more to it. Maybe there is, um, maybe there is some, some sort of satisfaction, maybe... Uh, Maybe there is a legitimacy for the royal family. In addition, uh, Dr. Rashid also said um, that we witnessed uh, some sort of uh, protest in the eastern uh, part of Saudi. And then she showed some pictures of, the, um, of, uh, of very small gatherings in the, in the Najd region. Um, however, she did not account for the variation also. Um, um, yeah. That's my question. And my name is Hisham Lohan. Now I'm a political PhD student. 
Thank you. Thank you. That's five uh, very good questions. I haven't made a list in case you okay, forget any. Right. So yes, well, let me start with the end, uh, with the last question and move uh, back because it's fresh. Now, I didn't say that um, uh, repression explains why the Saudi Arabia didn't witness the same kind of protest. Um, uh, in fact, you know, repression has never intimidated anybody, um, and repression was prevalent everywhere. And yes, people did go. As I said, you know, why um, the protest didn't spread in Saudi Arabia. So you've got to read that article again <laughs> on the web. Uh, but I explained it in the nature of uh, uh, fragmented Saudi publics. Uh, it's not about satisfaction. It's not about uh, repression. Uh, it's not about uh, people are happy with a legitimate leadership. There are certain, you know, we forget that Saudi Arabia is, is seriously different from other countries in the sense that there are f uh, fault lines and fragmented <coughs> publics in the, and they have not come together historically in any kind of uh, mobilization. You know, there was serious protest in the eastern province. I mean, more than 22 people died over since the Arab uprising started. And I said that I wasn't going to talk about that simply because, as I said, my colleague, if you are interested in that story of the Shia protest, you should read Toby Mattison, uh, The Other Saudis. Uh, he's written a very, very good, excellent book on the documenting the history of the Shia and their protest, which had a long history than any other region in Saudi Arabia. Um, what I showed was uh, the uh, some photos of the protest, but there were others that had taken place. And if you look at that moment between 2011, 2012, and 13, there was quite a lot of protests outside the Shia. But it was fragmented, small scale. It wasn't comparable to anything that we have seen uh, in other Arab countries. So, I, 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 but you know, how to explain that? That's we could debate that, but. In terms of facts, there was minor protest in these regions, in Riyadh, in Jeddah, in, in uh, Breda, and others. Um, I, think, I think that's... Uh, um, that's there are some people who are satisfied. That doesn't rule it out. Also, there is a new trend that is emerging of, among Saudi youth who are interested in improving themselves, very individualistic. They do really don't care about these big questions. As long as they can get a scholarship, get educated, go back, find a job, that's fine. And we have to acknowledge that not everybody has a revolutionary agenda. Some of them have very personal agendas. They're happy to not rock the boat because they hope that they will benefit from the system. So they get a scholarship. Once you get a scholarship, you cannot uh, go on a demonstration. You have your scholarship uh, withdrawn. And this happened to many students in Canada, in the US, and now they are stranded there. Uh, so those people want to have a future and uh, there is no solidarity with others. Personal projects, perhaps, but you know, not, not, again, if the rentier model works 100%, then why do we have people like those ones who are, uh, Abdullah al-Hamid was a professor, Al-Auda was a, 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 a professor in religious studies. Uh, they're all middle class, perhaps, you know, comfortable people. I mean, why, why did Abdullah al-Hamid take the cause of political prisoners and landed in prison for 15 years? He was, a, uh, you know, he doesn't come from a deprived family. He had a long history. Some people who live beyond economics, 
and it is difficult to explain if, if you use the Rontier model. Why did we have these protests throughout the history of the oil movement? The first demonstrations in Saudi Arabia came in the oil region where they all had jobs. So uh, yes, um, the Middle East as blessed by oil and uh, natural resources and then why doesn't Saudi Arabia uh, use its uh, wealth to spread Islam and not dominate or seek domination. Is that right, what you uh, said, yeah? In, in a way, it, I mean, it does that. It wants to spread a specific Saudi kind of Arabia Islam. That forever, Saudi Arabia they, they created a revolution uh, to bring uh, people to Islam. Uh, and and it, it, that's OK. But if they become political, uh, then the whole ideology will crumble. They have close proximity to the Prophet Muhammad. And how they be like the Vatican? Oh, okay, yeah. It's well, it's very difficult to, to be like the Vatican. I don't think uh, we can compare religious, them. Religious rather than political. No, they're political actors. They're not after religion. They may have the umbrella of religion, but they are political actors going for domination, for uh, hegemony in the Arab world, the regional pre uh, you know, uh, role. They're not going to be just uh, the popes. Religion becomes uh, political rather yes. than religious. But it, it is, it's very difficult to see. It's very difficult, I'm sorry to say, but to see Muhammad bin Naif or Muhammad bin uh, Salman as like popes. <laughs> it's very difficult. Yeah. No, they're political, political actors. I think they're all political actors seeking politics, not religious uh, favors with God. Uh, in terms of, yes, modern, modernity, modernism, yes, and whether this is appealing to Western audience. When you write a book, you know, the, the, uh, uh, it's an academic book. It engages with literature, with uh, theories of modernity or alternative modernity, multiple modernities, etc. But it is not directed towards the West. I mean, you know, the fact that it is in English, it means that the people who are going to read it must speak English, but doesn't necessarily mean that they are in the West. In Saudi Arabia, they will read it um, in other parts of the world and might get translated into Arabic as well. So um, the audience, I think, doesn't worry me. What is more Im interesting in your question is this word modernism, modernity, and big question mark on them. They, refer, they are referred to as Tanwiris or Asranis. And in English, the closest you could get to Tanwiri or Asrani is modernist, I think. Uh, so uh, this is why I justify the use uh, of the word modernist. On women and what happened to women in their project. Yes, there are debates. Um, I try to uh, see if there are women uh, who write within this group, um, and I've, I've dealt with their writings in a, a previous book called uh, A Most Masculine State, and uh, I looked at the discourses of women, but I didn't want to repeat myself in this book. What I can say about the position of those uh, people, you can see how Hassan, for example, is accused of encouraging women relatives to uh, uh, demonstrate. And some of the pictures I showed on these small demonstrations, after these demonstrations, the, quite a lot of the activists in Hassan got uh, uh, imprisoned. 
They do not see that women should actually not be part of the public sphere. And on driving, which is the uh, you know, cliche now, uh, quite a lot of them don't see anything in Islamic texts that prohibit women from driving. And they were asked in Al Auda, for example, uh, what he thinks of uh, uh, driving and the ban in Saudi Arabia. He argues that um, there's nothing in Islam which prohibits women driving. We have to look at society and social norms to understand what's going on in Saudi Arabia. But uh, in general, Islam and uh, driving doesn't contradict being Muslim. And the big, very big question, uh, the first one on the Saudi national identity, um, I think, you know, in, in, if, if you look at the Arab world in general and um, the type of nationalism that uh, came with decolonization and independence, liberation movements, etc., from Algeria to Iraq, Syria, Egypt, it was a very different kind of nationalism, very much similar to the European model of secular nationalist leaders, for example, the Algerian uh, liberation movement, even Nasserism, Ba'athism, and that was a justification for the, the state for several decades before they were sort of uh, um, sidelined by the rise of Islamism. In Saudi Arabia, I think what we have is a different kind of nationalism, and that is religious nationalism. And it's a different kind. Uh, there are some common grounds. For example, their position on women. The uh, modernist, uh, the nationalist, the Ba'athist Nasserites th thought that women were symbols of modernity, that they have to show their faces, they have to give them seats in parliaments, they have to support them because they regarded that as, uh, as a, a project of nationalism. But at the same time, they wanted women to be uh, family makers, homemakers, produce the nation, uh, look after its moral uh, um, you know, morality, uh, but in Saudi Arabia, there is a focus on women in this religious nationalism, but to keep the piety of the nation. So women are responsible for maintaining the piety of, of society and also the distinguished character of, of uh, Saudi Arabia as a Muslim society. So women become important. Now, this religious nationalism is, is a product of instrumentalizing the Wahhabi movement uh, which happened in the 20, early 20th century, turning it from a religious revivalist movement into a religious nationalist movement. So being Saudi today is you have to subscribe to the tenets of Wahhabism. You have to have religious conformity, hence the uh, restrictions on other religious practices, folk Islam, Sufi tradition, um, to homogenize the Saudi pop the, the population of Arabia, because there wasn't really something called Saudi, to homogenize that population, you had to impose on it religious nationalism, that you have to look the same, you have to dress the same. And therefore, it's a different uh, uh, religious nationalism that exists associated with Wahhabism. And also, at the moment, it is this kind of war that is that inflaming the imagination of uh, uh, reinvigorating this religious nationalism because the fight of King Salman is a fight against the heretical Shia in Yemen, uh, the Houthis. Um, it is uh, when they uh, went into Bahrain, it was a fight against the influence of the uh, Iranian Safavid, uh, call them whatever you want to call them. But this is the religious nationalism that we are witnessing being reinvigorated in Saudi Arabia. 
simply, I would say, is because the national, original national identity was weak. Right. Thank you very much. I have to draw a line under this because we've strayed over time. But you can indeed engage Madawi in much further and detailed discussion if you buy a book outside for only £20, and she'll sign it. I think that leaves us to thank her for a superb lecture and, and a wonderful book. <laughs>